Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Omicron is dominating the current COVID spread, and we're told we're going to have to pull out all the stops to help flatten the curve. We'll speak with Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger about that, what that means for Hamilton. Also, Dr. Peter Uni will share his two cents worth of strategy for slowing the spread. Are pharmacies prepared for the demand for these booster shots and rapid tests, or did the Premier throw them under the bus? Justin Bates, Ontario Pharmacists Association, will address that. And COVID is causing all kinds of headaches for the National Hockey League. Hockey writer Nick Alberga will join us to talk about that. It's all coming up at the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. But to begin with today, uh, a mayor's town hall, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger will, is going to join us in just a couple of seconds. And, uh, well, we got a lot to talk about here, too, about what's going on in the city. And uh, since, uh, you know, we're drawing toward the end of the year now, uh, maybe a look forward as to uh, what's going to be happening in 2022. A lot here, by the way, on the municipal level. We welcome Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger back to the program. Mr. Mayor, hope you're doing well today. Doing great, Bill. Thanks for having me on. Good to have you here. Uh, lots to talk about today. Maybe uh, just uh, to talk about, uh, let's let's begin today talking about what's going on here in this community with COVID. Uh, we got a rather dire message uh, from the science table yesterday. I know that uh, you and Dr. Richardson are in constant contact. And uh, talk to us about the plan, because you've instituted some some new moves here in the city uh, vis-a-vis vaccinations, etc. Yeah, we're uh, we're moving as quickly as we can to kind of cycle back into expanding our vaccination sites right, right across all of our locations. So we're we're maintaining the same locations, but we're expanding the capacity in all of them. So the center mall location, the Lyridge Mall location, uh, the uh, the one at uh, the, in the West End, all of them uh, functioning and and functioning well, but the capacity is going up significantly, which also means that we need to second. Uh, lots of people out of our other facilities to be able to uh, do that work as well as the contract tracing that comes uh, comes with it. And that's uh, hundreds of people that are going to be moved out of some of our other facilities, which also means that, sadly, some of our uh, recreational facilities are going to close for the for the for the for a period of time. Uh, some of our museums, uh, save and except under castle is going to close not because we don't want people access to those facilities, but because we need the staff uh, in other places to be able to accommodate the, the added vaccine and added contract tracing to, uh, to manage this vaccine. So we're moving as quickly as we can. Uh, it is, uh, again, a, a moment in time where we have to pivot and pivot as to, you know, the, the impact it's having, the number of cases that are happening, and, you know, we're going to adjust as we go. The good news is that, uh, you know, a large chunk of our population has been vaccinated and we're now opening up the vaccination capacity for everyone 18 plus that uh, is starting on Monday. So uh, there was going to be a great, great wave of people looking to get the the booster shots. And hopefully, uh, you know, those that haven't had the first and second dose are still able to do so. They can still go to those clinics and get their first and second shots. But uh, for those that are eligible for that booster shot, I know there's going to be a great crush for that. So I, I just ask for some patience on behalf of everyone. I think everyone's anxious to get it as soon as possible. I understand that. Uh, but there are various locations where you can get it. So all of our existing clinics, 100 pharmacies in the city of Hamilton are, are available to be able to, uh, to take uh, folks into uh, their, their pharmacies to be able to administer the vaccine as well. And so uh, utilize all the resources out there, but uh, be patient. You'll get, everyone's going to get what they need. There's no shortage of supply. 
And so uh, we're going to move as fast as we can to get, get everyone uh, the vaccinations they need and then encourage people to, uh, to listen to the public health advice. And, uh, you know, right now the advice is uh, when you're gathering for Christmas, uh, you know, 10, 10 or less uh, when you're gathering in person. So small family gatherings and uh, 25 outdoors. Uh, I could say that uh, that may change depending on what the case counts, uh, you know, happen to be over the next couple of weeks. So be prepared for, you know, additional changes. But right now that's the standard that we're applying and masking and physical distancing you know, has been important all the way through is even ever more important now. So, you know, please keep that masking going. It's uh, the least we can do to help prevent the spread. Now, just, just to be clear then, because I know, I'm sure you have, but we certainly have heard from a lot of people that say, like, I've tried calling all these numbers and I can't seem to get through and I can't get an appointment. Uh, the the influx that you've started now and some of the clinics that you've reinstituted, including the one mm -hmm. in St. Joe's on West 5th, mm -hmm. uh, are these walk-in clinics now? People don't need to phone ahead. They can just show up? No, I would say they're uh, they're generally by appointment, uh, but okay. uh, you know, I don't think anyone's going to be turned away. Um, uh, the You know, the first crush... Uh, has been traditionally uh, a challenge because it overwhelms the system. And uh, but you know if you if you wait a day or two or maybe even hours, uh, once that first crush has kind of gone come and gone, uh, the system functions very well. So you know if everyone tries to get on at the same time at eight o'clock Monday morning, that may be a challenge. Uh, pharmacies uh, will take direct phone calls from individuals. So uh, I was able to uh, get my vaccination booster by phoning a pharmacy directly and just making an appointment. Uh, that's also uh, available to folks uh, in the broader community. And so, uh, you know, avail yourself to all of those resources, but uh, we, you know, we, we the, the, the initial crush is likely going to, you know, cause uh, some sort of a, uh, 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 an inability to get through, but ultimately, uh, you know, within days, you're gonna get your appointment and, uh, and you know, it may not be the same day, uh, you know, there's a lot of people to vaccinate here, and we're going to be doing it at the rate of about 10,000 per day. But the uh, the reality is we have the capacity to do it, but we can't do everybody at once. Uh, you saw, I'm sure, at least the highlights anyway, of uh, Dr. Steiny Brown's comments yesterday, a uh, rather dire picture that he painted about what could happen and looking at some of the projected numbers. Uh, the phrase that he kept using and Dr. Yuna used was a circuit breaker. In other words, something has to be done to break this this progression that we've seen. Uh, now we don't know what that means. Uh, we don't know how the government's going to interpret that either. Uh, you know, the premier said he doesn't want to do any lockdowns, but he says everything's on the table. That's rather frightening, too, to think about something like that again. Mm -hmm. Have you had discussions, Mr. Mayor, about a contingency to be like the what if scenario that if they decide, OK, we've got to have to do something drastic right now? Uh, we don't want to go back. I, I sure hope we don't want to go back to the way things were last December. But uh, are you prepared to be able to do that if, if you ordered to? Absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, Dr. Richardson is looking at all contingencies. Uh, she has the authority locally to uh, exercise her Section 22 authority to, uh, to make localized changes. And it certainly seems like the province is not prepared to do a province-wide province uh, uh, orders, although some of some of the re restrictions that they're uh, they're offering up are are province province wide, but they're also leaving a lot to this to, to local municipalities or local regions to make decisions around the impacts that it's having in their communities. So as you you know as you know, Kingston was kind of the canary in the coal mine for Omicron, and they were uh, you know first out of the gate with more more restrictions, uh, and you know locally if uh, if if it's required, not desired, but if it's required 
that uh, the, the only way that we can, uh, can control this virus and not overtop our healthcare system, which, uh, you know, obviously is now a, a heightened concern, then, uh, then local decisions will be made in terms of pulling back, uh, you know, either capacity issues or restrictions in certain facilities. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm the last person that wants a lockdown like everyone else don't want it. But uh, you know what, the, uh, the, the potential of uh, having this uh, virus uh, overrun the entire system uh, is, is very real. And uh, we have to take steps to be able to manage that. And I, I keep telling folks, we can't control the virus. I mean, the virus is going to do what it wants to do. The things that we can control is is our behavior and our reaction to it, and uh, I know that uh, Dr. Elizabeth and I and uh, and and the city is prepared to do what's necessary, should uh, should the uh, the case counts uh, get out of control, and we need to do more to uh, control the measures. Mr. Mayor, what about enforcement? You've talked about some of the measures, and I think everybody's aware of these right now, masking, uh, social distancing. Uh, with, there's an argument to be made that a lot of us are getting a little sloppy about these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we've also heard instances of people just show up without masks and, and say, to hell with it, I don't want to and I don't need to. Uh, and, and that really puts the, the store clerks or store managers or whomever they're, they're confronting in a rather precarious situation. Is, is this a bylaw issue that the municipality is responsible for enforcing? Just where does the responsibility lie? Yeah, it is a bylaw and the, uh, you know, the ultimate responsibility lies with, uh, with the city to enforce. And, uh, you know, we, we all obviously want uh, local establishments to also set the standard. Uh, I know that uh, in many establishments, uh, you know, just uh, others, other citizens are, are very good about, uh, you know, pointing out to people where they're not participating in what uh, what they should be doing. So kind of peer pressure is uh, is one that uh, I think applies more than anything. Uh, store store owners are required to to contract trace and uh, identify who's coming into their facilities, especially in restaurants. And uh, and they have a responsibility not only to their to their patrons, but to their employees to ensure that uh, the proper masking and physical separating is being done. So this is kind of a collective responsibility. But if uh, if a store or a, a business is not uh, adhering to some of those practices, then certainly uh, city enforcement uh, can be called and we will step in and we will order uh, order them to uh, to participate and, and issue fines if they do not. So it's a it's a combination of uh, of things. I think peer pressure, uh, you know, by and large, I think encourages most people to do what they uh, should be doing. I think that's that's worked quite successfully, successfully, and it's been voluntary by and large uh, over the uh, the course of this entire pandemic. We're not looking to uh, to issue tickets and make money off of this, but we do want to encourage people to do the right thing. And if they're not doing the right thing, we do have measures that we can put into place that will uh, encourage them to do the right thing. In the last uh, wave, uh, when we were dealing with the Delta variant, uh, which seems so long ago now, uh, there were spot checks. Uh, city staff, bylaw officials were going from place to place. And, and as you've mentioned, there were charges laid in some instances. Mm-hmm. It's, I, I don't know if, the, if their staff are still doing that, but is it time to ramp that up now since the things seem to be getting some, rather severe? Yeah, it's still it's still happening, and uh, it will uh, it will ramp up absolutely. Uh, you know, again, we will probably have to second some people into that space to to be able to expand our ability to do uh, to do all of that. Uh, you know, what's uh, for for a period of time, it uh, it looked like we were, you know, managing things as you uh, you know we, everything felt everybody felt a little bit more comfortable, and all of a sudden this Omicron uh, virus shows up, and uh, and we're escalating into a whole different level of uh, variant uh, concern that uh, will require kind of a ramping up in all of those spaces. So 
uh, in a, in a folks, uh, you know, see, uh, you know, establishments or areas where, where the appropriate, uh, uh, work isn't being done. They can call the city. They can call the uh, city city helpline. Uh, they can call in through bylaw. They can call in through 905-546-4200 in our office, and we will pass it along. Uh, and uh, we will ensure that uh, the appropriate bylaw officers go and visit to, to ensure they're doing the right thing. Compliance is what we're looking for. Uh, we're not looking for penalties necessarily, but penalties will apply if people aren't doing the appropriate thing. And we do have the resources and the bylaws staff to be able to go out there and we're going to continue on with either spot checks or responding to complaints from citizens out there that are uh, that are seeing things that uh, should not be happening that have, is of concern and we're prepared to respond to it. Just along those lines, I, uh, Alexa writes in and says, uh, Mr. Mayor, you spoke earlier about masking. I have now twice in the last week been in retail outlets, one grocery store, one department store and come across a person deep in the store, not masked. I politely point this out, that they must have forgotten their mask, and both were exceedingly rude and condescending about what they called my stupidity, and thinking we needed them for anything that was all BS. Now, I don't understand why they were let in the store in the first place. In both cases, I spoke to the manager, and both managers advised me that they are not permitted to deny entry to people who claim to have a medical exceptionality. So as I understand it, she goes on to write, a medical exceptionality is a very rare thing indeed, and I'm more than sure that neither of these third, healthy 30-somethings act, actually had such a thing. Why is it that people who claim a medical exception to wearing a mask are not required to prove exactly what that is? If we want to get serious about preventing the development of new variants and want to get serious about preventing the spread, that's a loophole that's going to have to be closed. Uh, Lexa, I appreciate the email. Yeah. Uh, obviously, very yeah. frustrated, Mr. Mayor. What can be done about something like this? You know, I mean, I, I fully agree with Alexa, and I would think that the uh, the store owner, I mean, you know, grocery stores are, are places where, you know, it's going to remain open because people need their groceries, they need the food in the house, and so that uh, that becomes an area that's a little bit more challenging. But I know that um, uh, most grocery stores have had folks at the uh, at the front door, uh, you know, applying the standards that they apply for their their establishment. Uh, and uh, I agree with Alexa that if, if someone's claiming uh, a medical or, or religious exemption, which, uh, you know, we've all agreed uh, in very rare instances is, is something that's possible, uh, there ought to be proof of that. So I don't disagree with that. I would say, uh, you know, given where we are now, I, I, I think we're going we're gonna to see stronger enforcement. And if you think back to the, you know, the earlier times of the Delta variant, uh, it was a requirement to have someone at the door uh, taking uh, taking information and, uh, and making sure that people were wearing masks and doing that kind of monitoring. And I suspect that as this thing uh, starts to, uh, to potentially grow, that more of that requirement for people to be at the front of the store to do the checks is going to be a part of the process. So uh, I would say uh, right now, I think it's kind of a wait and see in terms of that process. But I, I, I fully agree with Alexa. That if uh, anyone's out there claiming uh, claiming an exemption, uh, that uh, that ought to be uh, demonstrated in some form or another. Not unlike what we need to do in terms of demonstrating our vaccination process. So there's got to be uh, some proof or some evidence that that is in fact the case, rather than someone that just uh, you know is an anti-vaxxer and doesn't want to bother. But having said that, you know, uh, individuals, uh, you know, taking others to task on that, you know, could could lead to further conflict. So, uh, you yeah, know, we I'd don't want to. That's uh, the problem. I think people uh, yeah, know, it, self, sure self-policing is. can have its own problems. Some reaction to uh, the email that uh, we read just before the break here. I totally agree with Alexa. If somebody is claiming a medical exemption for wearing a mask, they should at least be mandated to wear a plastic shield. Fortino stores offer these 
uh, at the store entrance. Uh, and and like-minded uh, emails on this too. I should mention, by the way, during the break, I just checked because it's been a while since I've looked it up. There are only two reasons uh, at, that you where, where you could qualify for an exemption. One is a documented severe allergic reaction to the components of the vaccine, documented. And the other is a documented history of myocarditis, which is a, a heart condition. If you don't have either one of those, you don't qualify for an exemption. So just lay that out there. I, you know, all these other people have said, well, I don't believe in it. So no, that's that's not an exemption. That's not that's not legitimate. Anyway, uh, we'll move on from that because there's lots more to talk about that in the days and weeks ahead as the vaccination program ramps up again. Uh, Mr. Mayor, I got to ask you something else, too, because we talked about this on the program a couple of days ago. Uh, with uh, Brampton Mayor Patrick Brown uh, passing a motion at uh, Brampton City Council uh, challenging Bill 21. Uh, that, of course, is the, the religious symbols law that was passed in the province of Quebec. And uh, you've introduced a notice of motion to Hamilton Council. Maybe you could tell us about that. Yeah, thanks, Paul. I mean, in the in the same vein, uh, we're, uh, we're looking to, uh, to support the, uh, the effort to uh, challenge their, uh, the, the, the ruling in, in Quebec around the uh, her being uh, dismissed as a result of her wearing a, a, a jihad in the, in, in the classroom. And I think that is a completely contrary to our Charter of uh, Rights and Freedoms. And I think we're going to be in a position to, uh, as a council, also uh, provide moral support at the very least. And, uh, and at the same time, uh, have a consideration around whether or not we're going to put some additional resources in to help that, uh, that um, you know, legal challenge on that issue, because it's certainly... Uh, smacks of, uh, of uh, the kind of uh, Islamophobia and, and potential racism that uh, I don't think is appropriate for this country. And so I think we need to stand tall right across the country to, uh, to push back on, uh, on this kind of activity that uh, would discriminate against anyone for what they're wearing, which, you know, in, in, in my mind, in, in, in this day and age, uh, sounds uh, absolutely bizarre to me. But uh, the, uh, the unfortunate reality is that, uh, that Quebec has has identified certain certain uh, clothing and certain symbols as being banned in that province, and uh, I think that's completely inappropriate, and that needs to be challenged. So, I'm uh, I'm hoping that uh, this uh, city council will step in to uh, support morally the uh, the legal challenge as well, and 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 make a consideration around whether we make a financial contribution to help the cause. Uh, the, the the bill, of course, is is not just about uh, the Muslim thing with the hijab. Of course, it also bans uh, headscarves, uh, turbans, mm -hmm. crucifixes, uh, if, you name it. There's a long, long list of stuff here. Uh, there is a challenge, and uh, I know that uh, Mayor Brown has asked a number of other municipalities, and you have responded. Uh, the uh, the mayor of Calgary, Jordy Gondek, is also going to do a similar situation. So I think that's something that it's a, it's growing right across the country, and uh, we'll follow the progress on that. Uh, just a, a quick PS to this though. Uh, notice of motion. It'll be probably sometime in January before council actually deals with this. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Uh, the first uh, available council meeting will uh, will deal with it. Uh, should be sometime around the seventeenth or eighteenth, I believe, of January. By the time we get back, uh, you know, notwithstanding, we'll be in a virtual space as we were, you know, hoping to be uh, back in some sort of a physical uh, uh, council meetings again. But that's uh, that's kind of now off the table. Uh, so sometime in and around January the 17th, we'll deal with this directly and then hopefully uh, be able to support this legal challenge. Thank you. Uh, your calls and uh, your comments for Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger. This is the Bill Keller Show on 900 CHML and uh, 980 CFPL London. Uh, Vic, you're, uh, thank you for holding on, Vic. You're first up uh, for the mayor. Go ahead with your question or comment. Hi, how are you? Good morning, Vic. Good morning. Uh, the reason I'm calling is uh, twice now I've been... Uh, gone downtown, I took to Claremont Access, I live on the mountain, and uh, 
I got to Wilson Street, and the traffic, because you put them bicycle lanes in there, is jammed right to Cannon Street. Uh, a fire truck come off Wilson, turned on to uh, Victoria there, and he was stuck. He was laying on the horn. The sirens were going. Uh, the second time I went, an ambulance come off Cannon Street, and he was stuck there because you got bicycle lanes on one side and parking on the other, and the traffic has nowhere to go. Uh, there's going to be major lawsuits uh, there, and the taxpayers will have to pay that bill. The second quick question is, uh, I told you about uh, where I live on the mountain where they're going to put the affordable housing. That's going to be putting in uh, 800 people in this survey, and they want to put curb extensions. It's going to let one car through at Jamestown and Upper James. Upper James is bad enough as it is. You can't get out if you're turning left. Uh, so now they want to even put the traffic jam even more. Uh, I asked for a stoplight there. They put a pedestrian one up about 300 feet from the corner instead of putting it at the uh, intersection where it should have been. All right, Vic, uh, two good points. I'll I'll let you go, and I'll let the mayor respond on the air uh, to, first of all, the bike lanes downtown and then uh, the affordable housing uh, just off Upper James. I guess that's the old school site that we're talking about here, uh, kind of in behind the Tim Hortons drive-thru. Anyway, go ahead, Mr. Mayor. Yeah, so so uh, on the on the bike lanes, uh, Vic. Yeah, it does change the traffic patterns, and I think people uh, need to think about how they adjust or what uh, what routes they take to uh, to accommodate whatever their need is. But it does change things, and it does uh, afford the ability for uh, you know more more mobility in different kinds of formats. And I think that's exactly the right thing to do. Uh, we've had some, you know complaints in, initially or early on when we changed the parking patterns on Herkimer or on Charlton uh, to create uh, the bike lane and narrow the lanes and, uh, you know, but, you know, generally speaking, you know, getting in and around Hamilton uh, isn't, isn't very much of a challenge. You know, if you compare that to uh, what's happening in Toronto, uh, you know, it's a, it's a whole different world here in Hamilton. So there, everyone's ability to get around our city is actually pretty reasonable. And with the advent of public transportation, that should, uh, offload a lot of that traffic and help with those congestion issues, uh, you know, even more. So that's really kind of the multimodal transportation network that we're considering and looking at and hopefully developing in the coming year. So we're going to continue w- working on various modes of transportation, whether it's cycling, walking, uh, driving, or public transit as part of the overall transit network. In terms of the development up on the, up on the hill, obviously, uh, you know, traffic issues are very much a part of any new development. Uh, I would say that it's a work in progress there to uh, get those units in, which I think is a positive thing. Uh, you know, having 800 additional units on a former former school site or former, I guess, neighbor to neighbor location uh, is uh, is a positive thing. That uh, is the kind of infill that we're talking about when we're talking about no urban boundary expansion. How how do we do more uh, positive, more higher density infill through in spaces that already exist? And here's one of them. Actually, just recently, uh, 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 New Horizon identified they purchased the uh, uh, the uh, Sherman and Mohawk former Walmart former Zellers Plaza and are proposing to do a thousand units there. Every time that happens, there are a number of traffic issues that have to be considered. And that is part of kind of the, the rollout of the new development and how we're going to accommodate that into, into neighborhoods. So additional lights may be required, uh, you know, additional laneways of traffic, additional bike lanes, all of that has to be considered as part of the new development as you bring that higher density in. And that certainly will be part of the process going forward. 
Thanks so much for the call. Let's uh, keep it going here uh, the, on the the Mayor's Town Hall. Um, John, you're next on the program. John, welcome to the program. Go ahead for the mayor. Oh, thank you for your time. Yes. Um, so a lot of these things you guys were talking about, um, the uh, you know requirement to have, uh, uh, you know, there's no way to get out of these mandates. So a lot of these mandates that uh, you're proposing uh, break the Nuremberg Code. So you can't be coerced into doing things. How do you feel? Do you feel responsible for making sure that that doesn't happen, Mr. Mayor? Uh, I feel responsible uh, to ensure that people are kept safe and that they, they have the appropriate tools to, uh, to be able to do that. And that we all have a collective responsibility to, uh, to, to our society as a whole to, uh, to make sure all of that happens. So uh, I know what the laws of uh, the province of Ontario and Canada are. I think we're well within them in terms of uh, making some of these requirements to, for people to stay safe. We have a responsibility not only to ourselves, but to our fellow citizens. And uh, when these kinds of challenges happen, uh, then, you know, appropriate actions have to be taken. And we know, uh, and you know what, we've, we've even gone to the point of saying that if you're not vaccinated as a city employee, that you cannot come to work. And, and if you ultimately refuse to, uh, to get vaccinated uh, down the road, that uh, your job's potential in jeopardy. And, uh, you know, the courts have upheld those kinds of standards, not only for the city of Hamilton, but for all other organizations that have made the same kinds of decisions. So I don't think we're, uh, we're breaking any, any uh, laws by making requirements to keep people safe. And, and as that's, the, that's the process that we're going to continue on. And uh, I know there's detractors out there uh, for whatever reason. Uh, but I think on the main, I think the vast majority of our population understands what's necessary and is prepared to do what's necessary to keep our community safe and to keep our economy as open as it can be. Thanks so much for the call. Hey, listen, I know we, we could probably spend the next five hours doing this, but people have to understand, and I know you've talked about this ad nauseum, Mr. Mayor, it's a public health issue. And, and your rights or freedoms or whatever phrase you want to use here only extends as far as the impact it's going to have on other people. And if you decide that you don't want to get vaccinated, you're a potential risk to carry this very, very dangerous virus. And that, that's what it comes down to. Uh, and by the way, nobody's holding anybody down and trying to vaccinate them. They're simply saying, this is a, if you don't do it, there are consequences. And, and these are the consequences. And that seems to be the problem. They don't want any consequences. Well, that's that's not the way life goes. But anyway, I, we're not going to start debating this now. It's It's been debated. Uh, as you say, uh, challenges have been made. Let's just move on and let's try to make everybody safe. Uh, where are we going next here? Um, Mike, I'm sorry, Mike, for the hold up here. Uh, go ahead for the mayor. Uh, well, I, I have a, a couple questions. Just uh, one thing, uh, like this green energy and, uh, you know, we're so worried about the environment. With all these bike lanes that are going up everywhere, I drive Hamilton. I do courier service all day long. I see these bike lanes rarely used compared to the congestion of the cars. Now, I thought the whole point was to get these cars going uh, to wherever they're going as fast as possible. It seems like most of these bike lanes are just congesting up and causing more traffic. So cars sitting, sitting idling in traffic, that's not really good for the environment. I thought that would be a uh, top priority. Um, second of all, um, well, actually, you know, I, I just, just what, what are your thoughts on that? Do you, do, you, do you not think that one of the most important... Well, give, it, no, give me your second question, and I'll let the mayor respond to both of them. Go ahead, Mike. Sorry, what, what's that? I said give your, state your second question, too, and I'll let the mayor address both of them. Okay, um, well... As far as as far as uh, you know, we're we're all in this together, and you know, you, we all got to look out for each other for public safety. I wonder, 
you have so many people struggling, struggling to survive these days, losing their businesses. How many, how many raises have, have you taken over the course of the pandemic, Mr. Mayor? I'm just curious about that. How many raises have you had? I know it's been more than one. So why don't you just indulge us on that, how, how we're all in this together? All right, Mike, I'll let you go, and I'll let the mayor respond to that and uh, the bike lane issue again. Mr. Mayor, go ahead. So let me uh, let me start with the uh, the bike lane issue. Uh, the uh, you know we're 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 trying to uh, not necessarily have cars get you to a you know from A to B as quickly as humanly possible. We we want to be able to get everyone to A and B in various modes of transportation uh, within reasonable timelines. And so uh, you know, car isn't king. It isn't the only form of transportation that's available to people. Uh, there is a growing uh, demand for uh, cycling and cycling opportunities. And we're trying to meet that demand and actually trying to encourage that, you know, from a health and wellness perspective, uh, you know, cycling and getting that level of exercise is a very positive thing. I would encourage kids to do more of that. I would encourage kids to, to walk to school more. Uh, we know from a public health perspective that more activity and more, uh, you know, mobility, uh, individual mobility, uh, on a day-to-day -day basis is good for overall uh, personal health and is good for our overall public health system because it puts less stress on, on the system because people are healthier. So if you, you know, package all of that, if, uh, if, if, our, if we're slaves to cars, uh, then we're also going to be slaves to, uh, you know, continuing congestion as well as, uh, you know, not getting the health benefits from uh, kind of more mobility. In terms of my raises, you know, I'm not going to even go there. Uh, you know, lots of, uh, lots of money and resources has been uh, put into the economy by multi-levels of government to try and get all of the, uh, the folks in our community, either uh, keeping them in business, keeping their employees whole, uh, tens of millions, if not hundreds, well, I'm sorry, billions and billions of dollars has been spent by both the federal, provincial and municipal governments to, uh, to try and keep people whole. And that, uh, that has been uh, the order of the day. We ran a transit system that was running at about 10%. And we said uh, we have a responsibility as a municipality to keep transit operators employed, even though the, they were only running a 10% transit system, it was kind of hypocritical if we were to take money from the federal governments to try and keep other people employed. And at the same time, the municipality was, uh, was unemploying uh, people or making cutbacks to, uh, to uh, you know, accommodate the pandemic. So everyone has tried to keep everyone whole throughout this entire pandemic. And that's certainly going to continue to be the effort going forward. And we're encouraging our federal and provincial partners to continue to do that as well. And the commitments that I'm hearing from the prime minister and the premier is that they're going to do what's necessary to keep our economy solvent and to keep as many people in our community uh, either en employed or with the, the resources available to be able to pay their rent and get the food they need so that we can have an economy when this pandemic is over. Well, if the numbers are continuing to go up, and according to uh, with Dr. Uni, who's going to join us in just a few minutes, these numbers are, are, are frightening now. Uh, is there been a conversation between uh, municipalities and the federal and provincial government about extending some of these assistance programs? This is not going to go away anytime soon, clearly. Yeah, exactly. And that's uh, that's an ongoing conversation. It has been. Uh, we, we have continued to struggle on the transit side, so we're still running at about 50%. So there's a significant loss of revenue, you know, more, more significant Toronto, uh, you know, it's in the billions of dollars. We're into the tens of millions of dollars here in Hamilton and other supports for uh, for uh, you know individuals and businesses out there i anticipate will be coming from the federal government to keep people whole we cannot we cannot allow 
our economy to go in into the into this into the gutter because uh, if we do it's going to cost us all that much more to try and restore that economy we know that i think the uh the 1933 de depression actually was a lesson in what you don't do which is uh, make no investments and let the economy look after itself well it doesn't happen it needs financial support from our uh, governments and if we're at that financial support lands then uh, once this pandemic is uh, back under control, uh, the economy, uh, you know, get back, gets back on track in a reasonably quick order. And we've witnessed that through the Delta variant process. You know, over the past uh, six months, we've had a robust and, uh, you know, growing economy. The employment is back up again. And that's, that's a testament to the investments that were made by other levels of government to keep the economy whole. So I anticipate and I know that those resources are going to come flowing back once again, if necessary. Uh, we're out of time. Uh, our apologies to uh, to the emails and the phone calls we cannot get to. Uh, we pick this up. We'll do this again in a couple of weeks after the the holiday season. Uh, lots to talk about by then. We'll be well into the budget process for the municipalities as well. Uh, Mr. Mayor, thank you for the time uh, and for making yourself available uh, through the course of the year. We look forward to uh, 2022 and continuing the tradition. Uh, all the best for a Merry Christmas and a and, uh, Happy New Year. And we'll talk again soon. Bill, thank you so much. And, and to all your listeners out there, uh, you know, make the very, very best of the uh, the holiday season. We know it's challenging, but uh, do the very best, stay safe. And uh, we're going to do everything we can to keep people safe. And uh, in the meantime, enjoy what you can with whom you can over the holidays. Merry Christmas to everybody. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, you saw the announcement the other day from Premier Doug Ford uh, talking about uh, increasing uh, the vaccinations to get the boosters out there. And uh, essentially, uh, well, some people suggesting throwing all the pharmacies under the bus here, saying what's well, up to them to, to get this whole thing done. There wasn't a whole lot of consultation, apparently. We're going to get the other side of the story uh, just after 1030 this morning from the Ontario Pharmacists Association. But first of all, I want to talk about uh, the projections that we got yesterday, of course, from the Ontario Science Table. Uh, and it was a, a rather dire picture that they painted, but I mean, I'd rather hear the truth here that had this whole thing candy-coated. And uh, look at some of the projected numbers here right now, and the government responds to it. I think there's some serious questions that need to be asked. Uh, to that end, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Peter Uni. Dr. Uni, of course, is the director of the Ontario Science Table and a professor of medicine and epidemiology at the University of Toronto. Doctor, a pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks for your time today. Thanks for having me again. Can I ask you just, I, we heard from yourself yesterday and, of course, from uh, your, your your colleague, Dr. Steiny Brown, uh, suggesting that this com coming wave, the one that we're in right now, uh, would likely be the hardest wave of the pandemic. There were projections that yeah. uh, the uh, number of daily cases could hit 6,000 as of early next week. With all these numbers and the projections, doctor, that you've looked at, is the province's response to this appropriate? I know I think there's work to be done. I hope this happens very soon. We're looking at what they're doing, and I know you know even the health minister suggested yesterday that uh, that well we've put measures in place too, and that's going to have an impact on this. It's this seems to me, doctor, almost like deja vu about a year or so ago when you and I talked. It seemed as if that time the government yeah. wasn't believing the projections that the science table came up with, and they didn't even respond until sadly those projections were reached. Uh, we're not going down that road again. I hope. I hope not. You know, we have an extremely capable uh, chief medical officer of health. And I think uh, Kieran Moore has completely understood the seriousness of the situation. That's my impression based on, you know, repeated conversations with them. 
and uh, and we'll now just need to react very swiftly indeed i agree with you um you know this uh, yesterday there was a tweet co uh, communicated from uh, the office of uh, of uh, minister elliot related to uh, that the, our modeling didn't take into account the uh, the measures taken and then uh, our colleague Ashley Tuit actually just repeated the modeling just taking this into account um, and we also had that modeling before we just hadn't published it it doesn't change a thing actually that's that's the problem you know what what has been done so far is extremely important let's face it that's investment for the future for january okay so especially that this extremely rapid rollout of uh, third doses we need that we need the rapid test this is all great news and of course we need to restrict um sports arenas etc i don't disagree with any of that but if you need to uh, basically just make it back to 50 percent of the contacts if you basically just have um, you know, sports arenas um, restricted by 50%, it won't change the contacts, of course not, no? So what we now need to just deal with is keeping businesses and restaurants and everything afloat as well as we can. They keep going, but we just really need to have capacity restrictions, etc., because there's a, a, there's a real tidal wave that uh, is uh, in front of us. Well, and the numbers tell a story, and, and they always have when you, you've done your research on this. Uh, you know, for instance, to, to suggest that this may be the hardest wave of the pandemic, just to put that in perspective, I just want to remind our listeners uh, that during the, the Delta wave, there were about 900 people in ICUs. Uh, the hospitals were overwhelmed with uh, the number of people in here. If this is going to be worse, uh, what, what are your concerns about the impact this is going to have on, on primary care facilities, health cares, and ICUs? Yeah, well, so it was the alpha wave where we struggled that much. We did extremely well uh, during the delta wave because we went slow and steady. The problem is we can't go slow anymore because this thing doubles every three days. Now, we I don't know what the case numbers are today. I didn't have time to look at it. But I expect them to uh, be three, actually... 3,124, doctor. Yeah, you see, it's they accelerating. Just, they just came out. This, this makes sense, you know, so we, we had, we reached 50% of Omicron uh, just uh, one or two days ago. And what we predicted is after that, things will accelerate. And that's what we're seeing right now. The challenge now is just really to understand this is the sheer numbers that we're seeing, you know, we need to react immediately that we can blunt this wave a bit and just get more time to vaccinate people and, uh, you know, get more time to get our resources ready and so on. And hopefully, hopefully also have all those out there a lot of people you know who experienced uh, you know um, systemic racism in the past who were disenfranchised etc who never have seen a vaccine needle so far it really pains me you know when i think about what's coming there because you know everybody will get infected who is not vaccinated and, and a lot of people of course also we just need to be aware of that but it will be much less severe who are twice vaccinated will still experience infection this virus, if it comes now to infection, doesn't distinguish anymore whether you are fully vaccinated with two doses, don't call it fully anymore, my mistake, uh, or not. We all just uh, have will develop a force of infection, which will be much stronger than ever before during this pandemic. You used the term, and as your colleague uh, Steiny Brown used it yesterday too, a circuit breaker. Uh, yes. The, the, the impression I got from that, Doctor, is you're looking for something dramatic, a bold move here by the government uh, to break the, 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 the flow here. 
Yeah, so at the very, look, I mean, we're all aware of, we're all so tired, exhausted. And we're also, you know, people are challenged, you know, with if, if they work in places that are higher risk, they're challenged because of income, et cetera. We all acknowledge that. So we try to find a solution where we just all can do that in a way that the system continues to, to work, you know, societal liberties continues to flourish, the economy continues to work out quite okay, not perfectly, but we just have, you know, a really powerful opponent right now. And this means, you know, capacity restrictions, but, the, but you know, restaurants continue, etc. but we need capacity restrictions just everywhere. We need people to work from home again. Um, all of that just really matters extremely right now. Small gatherings, you know also over christmas if we have a, a christmas bump you know in addition to what we saw you know last year uh, in the western world everywhere in the world because people gather in in, a, in, a, in gatherings that are too large i mean then we're really in trouble in a day well we will be in trouble anyway but even more so so people really need to understand okay that's a small intimate christmas no big feasts nothing work from home before christmas and after you know, we need capacity restrictions and so on. Wear your mask, use rapid tests wisely, ventilate all the spaces as well as you can. This thing is airborne, has ever been airborne. All of that is important. The, the type of masks is, is something that's come under discussion too. Uh, and I know you've been pretty adamant about uh, the kinds of masks and, and the, the N95 masks that uh, many of us are using these days. Uh, but Wearing them properly seems to be something that we're getting a little lax with as well. Uh, and the social distancing. Is, is it time to, to re-up and, and just kind of remind ourselves about how important those factors are? You need to think about somebody who, who ate garlic, okay? You don't want to smell the garlic of somebody else. So what do you do? You have them wear a mask and you and the mask needs to be well fitted. If it leaks, you smell the garlic. And you need to be a bit aware of, uh, away from them because then again, you won't smell it. That's what we're talking about here. That needs to be your attitude, okay? And now, you know, it, it's not all about N95. So first of all, the fit of the mask is much more important. What I want people to do is ditch the single layered masks, cloth masks out there. That's nonsense. Forget about them, okay? So it needs to be at least a good double layered cloth mask that has been washed at least once so that the fil filter capacity is better. And of course, no holes. If it has been washed 50 times, then there might be holes in there. It needs to be really well fitted. Next level to that would be a medical mask, but again, it needs to be well fitted or a combination medical mask underneath and the cloth mask on top this also increases the fit of the medical mask and then you don't have to have an n95 you know there are you can go to home depot etc and just get kn94 or kn95 that's the comfortable version of an n95 uh, they're cheap they're available i believe relatively well i hope so uh, so you have all these options we need to be pragmatic and we just do as good as it gets and again think of exposition all of what I just said is much more important for a bus driver than for you going to the supermarket. You know, going to the supermarket and just have a medical mask or so, and then you leave again, it's well ventilated, it's not crowded, that's completely okay. I want to talk about, about our goals here, and, and uh, there seem to be a cross-purpose as what the government was talking about and, and what you and your, your colleagues at the uh, the science table were talking about. The phrase that we used to use, I guess, during the alpha uh, variant uh, in the first days of this, Doctor, was to flatten the curve. 
Uh, we were looking at these skyrocketing numbers and said we all have to work together to flatten the curve. When you look at how this is progressing and how it's 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 multiplying in such a, a rapid fashion, is flattening the curve still an option? Is that attainable? Uh-uh. No, we could just blunt the impact. You know, that's the point here. What we can do is we can try to really push back against it with a circuit breaker as much as we can so that we can gain time so that everybody who wants a needle gets a needle. That's the point. And we can't do that just within a day or two. We need a little bit more time. We need to get to 200 to 250,000 doses a day, including Christmas and New Year's Eve, and really just get up and get these doses ready. And only if we have the circuit breaker, we have a little bit more time so that you can get the vaccines to kick in with the third doses. But as I said before, also for all those people who have never seen a dose, please, please don't continue with that because you have a really high risk to end up on our ICUs and it pains me to think about that but it really pains me Dr. Moore suggested yesterday that uh, they they may want to revise the proof of vaccination uh, documentation that most of us are carrying around these days to include that booster in other words to include that third shot Uh, do you concur with that Oh, it's inevitable sooner or later, but first we need to have offered everybody a booster before or a third dose. Consider it a three-dose vaccine. I keep falling into my own trap here and talk about booster. So so once everybody has had the opportunity to get the third dose, then we need to say, okay, fully vaccinated this who has had at least two doses and is no longer than two to three months after the uh, second dose, probably three months. Uh, if they're longer than three months after the second dose, they need to have had a third dose, and that considers, uh, is, is considered to be fully vaccinated, indeed. How the government's responding and the, and the policies they're putting in place here, I find uh, very, very different in different parts of the province. So I just wanted to get your perspective on this. Uh, we know, for instance, for instance, Scotiabank, where the Raptors and the Toronto Maple Leafs play, uh, it's going to be half capacity. And I know a lot of people are complaining and whining about that and say, how could you possibly do this? Uh and there are some of your colleagues are suggesting, well, 50% capacity is still not good enough for what we should be doing. And I contrast that with what happened in Montreal, where the Montreal Canadiens played last night. Uh, and they didn't allow anybody in. There were no fans at that game. Yeah. They played it in an empty arena against the Flyers. Uh, it, it, does it have to be either or? I, I mean, let, you know, did Montreal, the, the province of Quebec go too far there? Or is that the standard that should be held in other parts of the country as well? Look, we need to be aware of that the a, a sports arena is likely still less of an issue than the small intimate restaurant around the corner. We talked about that before, also you and I. Now, yeah. The point yeah. is, you need to avoid that it's getting really crowded in the sports arena. Um, so you know, perhaps twenty five percent capacity. But then again, I also have an understanding, uh, you know, based on on everything we know now that uh, about what they, what Quebec is doing, I understand them perfectly well the problem really now is that this virus infects people who have had two doses of the vaccine or if they're more than three months down the line after the second dose as easily as an unvaccinated so you know from this perspective we really have an issue so if people are just you know queuing in the corridors of a sports stadium or so i mean when i think about that i get goosebumps so we need to do something to to, to decrowd just absolutely everything and whether this now means 25 percent but really clear measures and everybody wears masks no popcorn no coke nothing in sports arenas um and and uh, we just avoid crowding in corridors and washrooms etc 
or you know even going one step further we will see this is all very painful i can see that but it's also an attitude problem we need to find a solution where the economy keeps going society keeps going but we just decrowd everything okay it's all about crowd versus ventilation and space if you go somewhere and it's not you know very scarcely populated then you're in the wrong place it's as simple as that I'm hoping that the government heed what what you and your colleagues are talking about here too. You know, I, I'm tired of this. I know you're tired of all of this too. I saw your interview Absolutely. on CBC last night, and I saw your frustration, and I I, I felt your pain, doctor, because it's that way. But if we don't get the message, uh, this is just going to carry on and on and on. And I think that's what we have to keep in mind here: uh, a oh, little bit of pain it, it, for for some long term gain. I think you know one of the issues is the the, the third doses will help, but the problem is. If we're not careful, we will be uh, already finished with the wave and we haven't uh, actually vaccinated 40% of the people. This can go very rapidly. If it goes that quickly, then this could be really, but really challenging for our healthcare system. That's the challenge at hand right now. This wave could be, could be through within six to eight weeks. And if all the people who still need to make it into an infection have the infection within these six to eight weeks, then good luck for our ICUs. It's as simple as that. It is. Doctor, as always, thank you so much for the time. Busy day for you. I appreciate you joining us for a while. Stay safe. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, let's talk a little bit about this. Uh, we, we're getting some messaging here from the Ontario Science Table about just how important it is to get these booster shots uh, we uh, saw the ramp up, I guess, is maybe the best way to describe what the province is attempting to do here. Uh, are you guys at the table here, Justin? I mean, you've, you're a partner in this. You're going to be a major player in this, too. Uh, did you know this was coming from the provincial government, and are you prepared for this? Well, we are a partner, and we have been uh, working in collaboration with all of our healthcare colleagues uh, from the beginning of the vaccine rollout to ensure yep. we get everyone vaccinated and accommodate uh, every individual that wants to get the first, second, and now third shot. I would say that um, communications has always been a challenge with the changing guidelines, updated policies, particularly around eligibility. I mean, we've seen that from really the beginning in March uh, of mm -hmm. the vaccine rollout. And it's no different this time. We're, we're all trying to be agile. We're looking at the data recommendations coming from the federal government and NACI, um, Health Canada, and provincially. So we we were ramping up in preparation for opening this up uh, to all 18 plus. Um, our initial focus, of course, over the last week was the 50 plus category. Yeah. And the 18 plus announcement um, that came uh you know, almost right after was a bit of a surprise. Um, we know that uh, it's good policy and we welcome it, um, but it is creating some challenges in just getting and managing that demand. Which is, I, I guess, increased exponentially now since there was so many people say, oh, geez, you know, the 18 year olds are available. Uh, the, the phones must be ringing off the hook and, and your, your pharmacies are right across the province right now. People say, well, I want my shot at this now. A hundred percent. It is just uh, an unbelievable response, which is a good problem to have because people are still interested in getting vaccinated. The understanding of the importance of the waning immunity and, and getting your third shot to protect against things like Omicron. Um, but at the same time, you know, we have to manage that demand. We have to make sure that we do it safely and that we prioritize 
um, patient care over everything else. But we we will get the job done. We have committed uh, with uh, with our healthcare partners and, and government to uh, provide more access. Um, but it is you know this is a tremendously difficult time for healthcare providers when you know we've got flu shots still we have testing we've got our you know regular business around providing clinical services and dispensing um you know and and it's the holidays so you know we've been asked to extend our hours to open on stat holidays and and I know our pharmacists are proud and they have a sense of uh, responsibility to continue protecting their communities and step up but we can't um you know can't shy away from the burnout that uh, exists across our healthcare system well, I was going to ask you about that. I'm glad you brought that up since we are heading into the holiday season and there's this big push now to get everybody vaccinated or everybody who they can possibly get vaccinated. Uh, is that going to impact uh, hours? I mean, we're heading into holidays. People are going to want some time off. And I, I, you and I have talked about this in the past. You're absolutely right. I mean, the staffer, I just, you know, burned out. I mean, it's been a very, very uh, trying time and they've done an incredible job uh, and, and as well as their own job, as you mentioned. You almost, you know, you, you, you see the back of the line there, the back of the store of the pharmacy, and there's somebody else like, yeah, I know all about these boosters and everything, but you know what? I need my prescription filled for my heart medication or whatever it is. So it's it's business as usual, but it's not as usual with these guys. Uh, has there been some discussion about extending hours maybe to, to, to accommodate some of the vaccination requests? There has been, and many of uh, the pharmacies are going to extend their hours. Some will remain open on Christmas um, and, and New Year's Day and, and Boxing Day. So those those types of services will be hopefully dispersed so that every public health unit has at least one pharmacy that's offering vaccinations over the holidays. So some of the public health clinics won't be. Um, so there will be that challenge in terms of keeping the momentum and getting people vaccinated. I think we're up for the challenge. I think, you know, capacity is something we've been trying to prepare for adding health human resources and, you know, doing all the things that we need to do. But, you know, one of the challenges is the messaging around walk-ins, right? We've heard uh, the premier and others say, you know, walk into your pharmacy. And, and while that, you know, has been traditionally a great model on demand, you come in, you don't need an appointment. It has changed over the pandemic. And we have to make sure that we manage the demand coming into the pharmacy so that we can continue to adhere to the safety measures and protocols and make sure we have supply that matches the appointments. So our recommendation to the public is to continue to go to the websites of each of the pharmacies that you're interested in. They all have online booking systems. Start there. Some will promote that they are doing walk-ins. They might promote it by signage out front. They might promote it on social media or through their website. And in those cases, they've they have made an individual decision that they can do this safely and that they have enough supply. But by and large, the best best method of doing this and the most efficient way is to book those appointments and that allows it to be less chaotic. And be clear on the message too. I mean, we had this discussion with my, my local pharmacy a little while ago. They said, no, the, the, the flu shot is walk in. Yes, if you want a flu shot, walk in. We you know we can accommodate that. Uh, but you know, as for the COVID vaccines, well, you know, you really need to make an appointment. Uh, which leads me, and you, you touched about supply, Justin. Let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, some of the folks I've talked to around the Hamilton area over the last little while have said, "Look, it's it was difficult for a few days there to actually get any in. I mean, people were walking in and say, can I make an appointment?'" And the the, the answer, sadly, was, "Well, we don't have anything yet. We we're expecting shipping a couple of days ago. It hasn't arrived yet." Is there a concern about getting supply for the uh, what's going to be a very large number of, pe of, of people now that say, look, it's, I, I want to get in on this right now. Can you accommodate that? 
I, I know staffing wise, you're ready for it, but is there going to be enough, uh, enough pokes for people that, uh, that want to get in there and, and get that booster shot? It's a bit of a dichotomy right now. We have enough supply in the system and it's sitting in warehouses and, uh, and some out into the community for vaccinators, but the logistics and distribution components is quite complex there. For example, um, things like global supply chain challenges around Copax, which you need to be able to transport the vaccine without it spoiling. There's a global shortage. Um, so, you know, these packouts, cause they come in, in big units that the distributor will have to pack out, put into cold packs and ice, and then ship it over to the pharmacy and drop ship to 2,600 pharmacies is a huge operation. So there are some bottlenecks and some challenges with the ordering system that we've experienced over the last couple of weeks, but we're working with government. We're working with the pharmacy wholesalers to iron out those. And, and I'm confident that we'll get the supply out. It's just going to take some time. There's going to be some challenges in the first days because the demand is going to be so high. It's going to take some time to normalize uh, and get the vaccine out. But we're working on that. And I, I expect that um, we won't be in the same position that we were in in the early part of the rollout where supply wasn't here at all. So, I mean, there's mm -hmm. the good news is we have it sitting there. It's just, how do you get it from there and, and do that at the rate and the capacity that we need, which is almost 800,000 a, um, a week through pharmacy. So that's what we're trying to target. Um, and we're going to do everything we can to, to make that happen. Justin, who, in the logistics that you just talked about here, whose responsibility is to get it out of the out of the warehouse and and into the individual pharmacies? Is is that a federal responsibility? Is that uh, you know Health Canada? Is it a provincial responsibility? Who's 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 ordering the trucks and who's driving the trucks? Yeah, it's a multi-pronged approach. It starts with the federal government who procures all of the vaccines and then they apportion mounts and ship them to the provinces based on uh, agreements and uh, demand. And then from there, the, the provinces receive them through the public health, uh, what we call depots. Um, uh, and then those depots then ship them out and, and within the channels. So for pharmacy, that gets shipped to the pharmacy wholesaler, like a McKesson Canada as an example. And then they do the drop shipping to all of the, the pharmacies. So uh, lots of hands are on this in terms of uh, touch points through that supply chain. Um, and, and of course, you know, with pharmacy, there's so many of them and they're ordering based on demand. So it's more of a real time type system where uh, when we started the the uh, rollout uh, in March of this year, it was more, this is your set allocation. Whether you need it or not, you're going to get this amount. We've shifted now to a more flexible ordering system. So if I need 100 or I need 1,000, if I'm going to run a clinic on a Sunday, um, the, the concept here is let's get them that amount. So you're reducing wastage and you're getting enough supply to where it needs to be. The the vaccine itself, uh, you know, we've we've talked in the past that Moderna and Pfizer is essentially interchangeable. If you've had one, you can still have the other, etc. Uh, do pharmacies specifically order one or the other, or is it you get what you get? So that's evolved uh, over the course of the last eight months. Originally, there was a set allocation amount and set pharmacies that would receive Pfizer, and another set that would receive. Uh, Moderna, it was essentially 50-50. So we had 2,600 stores that were participating and 50% of them would get one or the other. Of course, we started with AstraZeneca and we didn't have the mRNA mm -hmm, vaccines. Yeah. And then that, of course, changed uh, into the late spring and early summer. So where we're at now is that pharmacies can order what they need. So if they need a Pfizer uh, dose or they need Moderna, they can order that. There's no constraints to which um, uh, vaccine or how many they can order um, as long as they have the demand. And we'll get the, the supply to them.
I want to ask you about one of the other aspects that uh, the Premier Ford and Minister uh, Elliott talked about the other day too, uh, and that was uh, the free rapid test kits uh, that they talked about and, and the, the the need they said for the accessibility for anybody or everybody who wants to get one of these tests to get one uh, and not charge for it. It was a, a somewhat of a controversial subject because some of your your members are charging for these rapid tests. Others were giving them away. Uh, and there were some mixed messages about who qualified for the free ones and, and who would have to pay for situations like that. Is there going to be a blanket policy now since uh, the province has suggested that, that everybody should get one? Uh, are, are pharmacies still going to charge for these or are they now free for anybody who asks? Yeah, it is confusing. And I think there is misinformation out there um, with certain pharmacies and how they've uh, procured the test kits. And and, and it's it's confusing and complex of who's eligible for what. Um, so we are working with the Ministry of Health on a plan to distribute free antigen test kits from the government stockpile, likely in January through uh, the pharmacy channel. And it would complement what they're doing now with the pop-ups and uh, LCBO uh, malls and other places. The idea... Mm-hmm. We believe in this is that we need to get every household uh, a kit and that that's an important screening tool that will help prevent the spread. But to date, the pharmacy channel has not been part of any distribution of free rapid antigen tests. The only program that we've been offered through the government funded uh, uh, program is the PCR testing. So that started with asymptomatic and then it evolved to symptomatic testing and and under certain criteria, people qualify for that. If you're outside of that criteria of eligibility, then it's a private pay model. So for travel, as an example, whether it's a rapid antigen test or PCR, that's something that the pharmacy would have to procure directly from the manufacturer. So they're not taking the free kits from the government and then charging uh, individuals. They have their own arrangement with the manufacturer and then they charge based on what they feel is the market rate based on their service fees and uh, the cost of the the kit. Um, And that ranges, right? Whether it's a PCR test, which is more um, of the gold standard, it's higher cost versus a rapid test. Um, So and the, the different testing modalities can confuse, be confusing as well. So if we get introduced into this distribution of free antigen test kits, it would be uh, part of the public program. But right now, we're not a uh, part of that. Let me ask you about the timing on that, That's because that's interesting. I, I, we kind of live in a fast food society where we want everything yesterday. Uh, it was only 48 hours ago the province talked about these these changes to the policy uh, for, the, as you say, the, the vaccine uh, and, and certainly for the testing as well. How long do you figure, Jason, is it going to take for this program to get ramped up so that people will be able to access these things uh, in a comfortable fashion? It's it's not as if, you know, the, these things were waiting at the back door of the pharmacy uh, the minute the premier made the announcement. There's, there's got to be some prep time and I guess some ramp up time here, doesn't there? Yeah, so similar to vaccines, we've uh, been working with the ministry in preparation for these announcements so that we can get the vaccines to pharmacies. Um, And you need at least uh, a week to two weeks uh, ramp up time. So you can't turn around the supply chain uh, in 24 to 48 hours. So that's why we work behind the scenes with government and we do everything we can to make sure that pharmacies are prepared with the information they need so they can answer the questions that inevitably come as soon as the news breaks, um, but also to have the supply. And it's no different for test kits. I mean, we need to make sure we pull our members to see who wants to distribute them and uh, voluntarily be part of a program. And then we need to work through the pharmacy wholesalers to get the product from government shelf to the uh, to the pharmacy. So that does take time. 
And right now, capacity is a concern. So we want to make sure our focus is on the third shots. And as we start to see that normalize and we get through the initial surge, then we'll put in the planning to distribute the, the kits. In the meantime, the government's looking at other channels uh, that we've mentioned, uh, which I think makes great sense. I, I think there's probably a model for Canada Post even. Uh, you know, uh, There's got to be a way to get these kits out efficiently so that uh, for the holidays, when people gather and, and do the things that we uh, all want to do, you have that peace of mind by uh, having the screening tool. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Right now, I want to talk about what's going on, uh, well, with the National Hockey League in particular, but professional sports uh, has been impacted, uh, as as everybody has, of course, by this latest round uh, with this variant, Omicron, and the impact that it's having. It just seems, though, as if professional hockey has been hit harder than some of the other sports. I'm not quite sure what the rationale, the science is behind that, uh, but they've had to react to this. Our new protocols have been put in place. So how is this going to impact the season? And, uh, oh, by those, uh, by the way, those Olympics, yeah, the, in Beijing, they, they've committed to send a team. Uh, are they still going to do that? There's a lot of concerns about that, too. Talk about all the stuff. So pleased to welcome back to the program Nick Alberga, who is a freelance hockey analyst and broadcaster. Uh, Nick, uh, great to have you back in the program. Thanks for the time today. Bill, uh, thanks so much for having me. Hope you're having a great day. So far, so good. I, I got to tell you, though, anybody who was watching the highlights of, uh, of last night's NHL action, uh, kind of a double take, and it's deja vu. You know, the game from the Bell Center in Montreal, nobody in the stands. Totally empty arena except for the two teams uh, because of COVID, obviously, with what's going on. Uh, are we heading towards that again, Nick? I mean, what's what's the word around the league about uh, about how they're responding to these numbers? You know what? It's it's sort of intriguing because last night watching pro sports in general felt, Bill, like May 11, 2020, the night before the entire uh, sporting world, mm-hmm. the entire world shut down. Um, I, I'm not sure it's going to get to that extreme. I, I certainly think one of the factors that we've seen over the last couple of days is the enhanced testing uh, for National Hockey Leaguers moving forward for at least the next three weeks to a month because – I think on the under the old provisions, they were only being tested once every three days, so they weren't they weren't getting the results in time. And as we know, with the new variant, how quickly uh, it's being transmitted, I think you need to test more, and that's what we're starting to see. Um, but you're right; um, there's been a rapid increase in cases around this league. I think in the last four days alone, there's been 60 plus cases to team or team uh, players and staff members. I should say so. It's rapidly evolving uh, throughout this league, but I think to help and to start, I think testing more often uh, is something they've included in the new enhanced protocol. So we'll see where it goes from here. Yeah, I guess Calgary is the team that's been hit hardest. I think, uh, mm. well, even the coach, but they, what do they get? 16 people in the protocol. Uh, tried to watch the Bruins game last night. And I kept, I say, who are these guys? <laughs> uh, the, the game, they've got 10 or 12 guys on the list right now, too, uh, which I guess just speaks to the, what they've been telling us all along that this thing is very contagious. And if it's one person in the organization gets it, uh, clearly everybody else is at risk, too. Well, that's the thing, too, right? Because it goes back to the the testing, right? Like, I think everything right now, as I see it, seems to stem to the Calgary Flames, as you mentioned. It's pretty crazy. You look at their depth chart. I think there's like three players who right now are not in COVID protocol. So I don't think we'll see the Calgary Flames uh, for, for quite some bit of time. But again, it stems back to the testing and how rapidly we're testing. If you're testing once every three days, you're not going to get the results in time. 
you know, to stop a team from playing or from players interacting. And, and honestly, I think that's what happened here is that teams have played the Calgary Flames, didn't know they were infected, got infected, moved on to play the next game and infected the next team. And, and suddenly you have an outbreak. Uh, um, so again, I, I think testing will be of vast importance. And the more they do it, I think the easier it'll be, and maybe easier is the wrong word, but you know it'll be more, much more simpler to deal with this and uh, you know what they currently have in place. I, I know they've been drawing comparisons, you know, with other sports and say how come it's not happening in the NFL? Well, they only play once a week. It's a little easier mm-hmm. to control, I would think, Nick. Oh, definitely. Like you know, the NHL world is is crazy and hectic. You got back to backs again. Like just look at all the teams in the last week and a half that have touched base with the Calgary Flames, whether it be you know, playing on a back-to-back or the night before or playing a team that played the Calgary Flames. Like, there's so many different factors, and I think you're so right in bringing that up that people try to make the correlation to say, uh, you know, a sport like the NFL, uh, it's unjust because of the the, the game volume, right? Uh, Two, three, four games a week, depending on Mm -hmm. the team, uh, with the makeup and and the time of the season. So that's it's going to be a factor. So the NHL has stepped up, as you say, the advanced uh, uh, methodology now for for doing the testing, and that's good. Uh, Not a whole lot else they can do. I mean, I I know they've talked about hey, the masking and everything else, and I I think you know probably we as a society, not just the NHL, uh, got a little slack about uh, about the protocols and wearing masks indoors. You know, well, I'm double vaccinated. I guess I'm going to be okay. Uh, but they've actually, I, I guess, included now a requirement to wear face masks at all facilities. Uh, meetings are going to be held virtually. This is really kind of going back to, to the way things were almost a year ago, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. I, I think, you know, especially, you know, not so much here in Canada, but, you know, things have been much more wide open in general in the States, and that includes the NHL team. So I think they're taking it back a tad, you know, talking to a couple players. I think they're being encouraged not to have holiday parties and, and rookie parties on the road, like anything that you know, could cause to an outbreak or transmitting uh, easier than possible than playing the game. I think they're trying to get away from. And it's something that I believe is in place, Bill, until January 7th, 2022. So it's not like a massive sacrifice. I know these guys have sacrificed a lot, but they're also getting paid lots of money. Um, So they're all in this together. Um, They've done it once before, and I think it's on them. And part of, you know, everybody's got a a play in this uh, from the crowd uh, involved to, you know, the coaching staff to, you know, everybody in an organization has to play their role in trying to curb this before it really gets out of hand. Because the worst case scenario is the NHL having to postpone its season. Um, I, you know, I obviously you probably will ask me about the Olympics. I think it's unlikely at this point in time they go, uh, but they got to make up games still like it could get out of hand quickly. And they still have aspirations of playing an 82 game slate here. So we'll see what happens over the next couple of weeks. I, I I know it's crazy to think about, and there's mass hysteria, and I get it. There's been cases left and right, but I think they just have to sit tight, um, you know, think it through, and see what happens over the next little while before making the next step. Yeah, I want to talk. I'll get back to the Olympics in a second. I'll circle back on that. Uh, we saw what happened, of course, in Montreal last night. As we say, they played uh, the Canadians mm-hmm. and, and the Flyers played with with nobody in the stands, uh, half capacity now at uh, at the Scotia Bank. So for the Leaf games, for the foreseeable future, and Raptors games. Uh, the announcement I heard this morning, Nick, is that, because uh, there's going to be a lot of upset people to say, hey, you can't go to the game. Uh, I guess preference will be given to season ticket holders, but I don't know if that's even going to encompass everybody. I, there's still going to be a few people, I guess, that are going to get left out. Oh, definitely. Like, this is a disaster. Let's be honest. Like, I, I think it's so confusing. Like, even last night uh, in Quebec, uh, 
Imagine you've planned your entire day around going to watch the Montreal Canadiens game at the Bell Centre and you find out like an hour and a half before that, yeah, we're not allowing a crowd in the building and you may be already on your way downtown to have dinner. Like there's just so many contributing factors and I totally comprehend we're in a pandemic so you have to adapt on the fly. But uh, just the wording and the, the mass confusion, the fact that um, you know, people really don't know what to do and it more stems with the Raptors playing home games as opposed to the Leafs who are right now um, in Western Canada. Uh, I think a lot of people are just really, really confused as to what the protocol is, but they do have a couple days here again with the Leafs out of town to, uh, you know, to get through that and figure out what they want to do. But yeah, it, it's definitely not ideal. They're losing tons of money, that's for sure, and a lot of disappointed people on top of that. Well, and, and again, you're getting this uneven playing field here, aren't you, Nick? I mean, because mm-hmm. this is this is an Ontario uh, edict. Uh, this So this applies to Toronto and to Ottawa, uh, but I mean, you know, the Jets, the the, the Alberta teams, and certainly uh, out on the left coast there, you know, with the Vancouver Canucks, uh, they can still play to full capacity as of today. Anyway, we don't know what's going to change, and and none of the American rinks, to my knowledge, uh, have expressed any uh, desire to do anything like this. So this is just really in Ontario at this point, isn't it? It is, and you know, it's fascinating to bring up as well. Like the World Juniors are coming up in a couple of weeks in Western Canada, and how that's yeah. impacted. But I think it's important to note that every province is dealing with COVID differently. The numbers are different in every province, and I, you know, different protocols are in place. So, uh, you know, you wonder if this starts to be the standard for the country. I think fingers crossed that this helps curb the situation in Quebec and uh, Quebec and Ontario right now. Because I think you're right. Like it's it's pretty interesting that you look around this league where. And it's important to note, too, with Montreal, like even the capacity limits, like they don't play another home game until 2022. Um, You know, they've decided to postpone tomorrow night's game against the Boston Bruins. But the Bruins are another team, as we mentioned earlier on our Ravage by COVID. And and some of the Montreal players last night said they were apprehensive to play the Boston Bruins in general on Saturday. So that was a smart decision. I think they're going to play it by week, play it by game and see where we go from here and where the numbers go from here. And it's going to be interesting to see how the league uh, responds to this, too. The numbers, uh, we're told, are, are, are rather frightening, I guess, when you look at some of the numbers in the States, too. But uh, the professional leagues haven't responded in the same way, and they were rather slow to do it, too. So this is this is going to be unique at this stage. Uh, the fans are going to have to just tolerate it, I guess, over the short term. Uh, what what are the, you you talk to the players about this, Nick? Too are, are they concerned? Mm-hmm. Are they there's a concern that they want to? I don't think anybody's talking about going back into a bubble or anything like they did previously. Uh, but this has got to have a, a a psychological impact on them too. You know, the same as it does with us. I'm supposing, you know, that hey, is this ever going to be over? And it's it's you know when you all of a sudden you go to a you know a game last night like the Bruins out on the island. And uh, like they got what eight or nine guys that are starters on that team are off on the sideline right now. It's 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 not the hot kind of hockey these guys want to play, and it's not certainly the environment in which they want to play. Well, that's the thing. Like even as a you know an athlete, you just want to go out there and do your thing and play the sport you love and do it to the best of your abilities. But with this weighing on the minds of pretty much every athlete right now, even you know prospective Olympians coming up, it must be a lot to deal with. Now. Having said that, like in the NHL world and the sporting world in general, I I think you have a lot of, I don't even know if confused is the right word, but, you know, players are trying to figure out. And again, we're still learning and growing, uh, you know, with this pandemic and, and, you know, with COVID um, and just the fact of, you know, how confusing it is that somebody could be asymptomatic and not be able to play. And I wonder if the wording or the terminology changes moving forward, because that's what confuses players the most is that, hey, 
you know, I, I'm COVID positive, but I feel no symptoms. Like how quickly, you know, can I return to the lineup? Because the current protocol in the NHL suggests you have to be out at least 10 days. And that puts you out for five, six games in this NHL world. So it's, you know, let, let's say it's important to bring up too. like NHL players are really regimented, right? They do the same thing mm-hmm. every day and you take them out of the regiment. They get a little cranky. So <laughs> I, I think that's part of the situation as well. And, uh, you know, everybody just doesn't feel proper about, right now and again uh uncharted waters it's important to bring that up because it just we never have been there before uh you know pre-2020 so i think we just honestly have to take this in stride you mentioned the olympics a second ago got a couple minutes left let's cover off on that there were some concerns and some reservations even before this uh the latest outbreak with omicron weren't there nick i mean uh when we started hearing about some of the chinese officials and some of the protocols Mm -hmm. they've got in place uh, that if you were to test positive during the Olympics, there's a possibility that you may have had to stay in China for five, four to five weeks. Uh, and I'm sure that, uh, you know, if, if you sent Connor McDavid or Sidney Crosby or somebody over there and all of a sudden he, you knew he wasn't going to come back for a while, that that's problematic. So I think a lot of players were apprehensive about going over there before all this started. But now that this is the way it is, uh, is, is, is do you think this is the final death now that the, Gary Bettman just going to say, like, it's just not worth the risk? Yeah, I don't even know if it's Gary Bettman. Like, I, I think the last couple of days, Bill, what we've seen is the the conversation shift from the NHL to, you know, do the players want to go? And, and I think yeah. that's ultimately where it stands. But I think that's clearly the biggest stumbling block is the quarantine rule or the potential quarantine rule. It makes a lot of sense. I, I know offhand, and I won't say the name, but there's one Canadian player who's on most projected rosters that right now his mind is set not to go, which would be obviously a big time loss to Canada, but you totally get it. Like these guys have families and they have loved ones and people they want to be around. And, um, you know, certainly I think you look at what's happening right in the, in the NHL, who's to say outbreaks won't happen at the Olympics. Now, maybe protocols are different, but the fact that you could be in a foreign country for that amount of time, it doesn't really make sense. Like the numbering and, and how long. So, I think players, I think they just want a bit more clarity in general. So there's still some time here. Again, uh, you know, as I said earlier on, the fact that it, we're sitting here on December 17th and it's mass confusion and chaos and there's cases left and right. A lot could be different in two weeks from now. A lot can be different in a month from now. So there's still some time to figure this out. But certainly time is of the essence. But that's the biggest takeaway is the fact that the quarantine thing uh, seems to be a big time um, you know, thing that they're talking about right now within the NHLPA. They don't want to deal with it. And and we'll see what happens over the next little while. January 10th is the deadline, isn't it, Nick? Do they have to say yay or nay to this? Yeah, it's not a concrete deadline from what I understand, though. I think ultimately, if you can believe it, they can be like before boarding the plane and say, hey, you know, we don't want to go. Like, it's not going to get to that point, but I think there is some wiggle room, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, so we'll see what happens with that. And the other aspect, just in the 15, 20 seconds we have left, in past Olympics, if I recall, you have to declare your lineup before the tournament starts, don't you? So, in yeah, other words, if, yeah. you, uh, if you end up getting four or five guys that are all of a sudden testing positive, uh, I don't know that there's an, an ability to even replace those guys in the lineup. Well, that's a thing, right? Because, you know, to your point, I think they have to make a pretty conclusive decision, say, you know, yeah. mid, mid-January. mid That's why I think they had sort of the, you know, the deadline, if you want to call it that, of January 10th, because I think you're so right. Like, ultimately, you have to decide who you're sending and what you're sending. Um, you don't want to just push it upon everybody, you know, a day before the uh, the Olympics start, right? 
Well, we'll see what uh, they have to say. And like you say, uh, uh, it's it's well the old thing they used to say about politics. I guess applies to the NHL right now. A day is a, is like a year long here. Uh, you don't know what's well. going to happen from one to the next. So we'll follow it and uh, and follow uh, your your analysis and your coverage of this too, Nick. Thanks as always for joining us today, and uh, let's stay in touch. My pleasure. Happy holidays, everybody. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.